You're listening to HIV News and Views, a podcast series from thebody.com. For a transcript of this podcast and for more interviews and first-person stories, visit us on the web. Welcome. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of thebody.com. A new report card has found that the HIV drug industry doesn't make the grade. Abbott Laboratories, F. Roche, D. Boringer Engelheim, D+. If the nine major HIV drug companies were in school, most would probably be in detention, according to a new report card issued by the AIDS Treatment Activist Coalition, also known as ATAC. ATEC graded the drug companies in five different categories, including fair pricing and their relationship with the HIV community. Some did okay. Merck and Company and Tebotech both got Bs, but most did not fare as well. In this one-on-one interview, we get the nitty-gritty on this telling report from longtime HIV-AIDS journalist and activist Bob Huff, a member of ATAC's board of directors. Welcome, Bob. Well, it was all over the New York Times. ATEC issued report cards to pharma, and the average final grade was a C minus. Can you talk a little bit about these report cards? Yes, uh, ATAC issued a report card on the performance of the pharmaceutical industry, specifically the companies who were involved in in marketing and developing HIV drugs, antiretrovirals, and we graded them on the basis of their uh, drug development process, the innovation they've shown in in developing new drugs, on uh, their access programs, both uh, prior to approval and after approval, and on pricing, and on their commitment to fair and balanced advertising and marketing practices, and finally, and maybe most importantly, on their commitment to involving the HIV community in the research and drug development process from the earliest stages so that the drugs that finally end up on the pharmacy shelves and the information that's produced from the, the research is really useful to the people who are going to use them. We decided to do this because all these messages, that pricing has to be sustainable, that you have got to raise the bar on the, on the quality of the drugs so that people can live with them for 30 or 40 years without side effects, without diarrhea, without sleep deprivation. We say this all the time when we meet with them, and we have for years but we decided we're frustrated because some of them don't take it seriously and some of them haven't improved their um, performance. So we said, let's do a report card and put it out there publicly, and so next year we can come back and see who's really stepped up the game. Let's first talk about the bad boys. So I see Abbott didn't do very well. Yes, they're back of the class, and and it's basically because of Abbott's infamous uh, 400% increase of the price of Norvir that they took back in uh, 2003. I mean, this is such a famous blunder that it's, it's taught as a cautionary tale and in, in, as a case study in business schools. So it's very well known. But Abbott also hasn't really embraced the principles of community uh, engagement in the research process and involving community members and members from the HIV community in the safety advisory boards or um, the mechanisms by which the drugs are developed. They've also said that they think Kalitra is pretty good and they haven't found anything better. So they're not that engaged in looking for new HIV drugs and they've kind of changed their focus to hepatitis. A few things went into it, but I would say predominantly it's that 
400% increase in the price of Norvir that is responsible for their grade. So I guess for people who don't know about, you know, the whole 400%, there are still many people taking Kalitra and Kalitra still has a good name, I guess, you know, out there. And I don't know if its market share has changed very much. I think it's slipping, declining slightly. But not because of their bad behavior. It's declining because there are other good drugs, right? There are other better drugs coming along. And their bad behavior was essentially to protect that, you know, we we feel was to protect that market share. Uh, um, It's a complicated story, but it it wasn't handled right. It was an egregious violation of trust with the community. It was really designed to thwart the competition because other drugs depend upon Norvir for boosting. Other protease inhibitors do. And Norvir is included in Calitra. So they could afford to make it expensive. They could afford to make Norvir expensive, and Calitra remained the lowest priced of the protease inhibitors. They get marks for holding the line on the price of Calitra, but the point of doing it was that they wanted to make the competition much more expensive so that it would drive the market share towards Kalitra, or at least stop the erosion of the market share. I think that was the claim that was made in a lawsuit. So they're acting like a regular business with shareholders, etc., and not a drug manufacturer that's manufacturing a drug that's saving people's lives. Well, they're doing all of the above. What they need to do is take the community more seriously, engage with the community and listen to them, and, and play fair. So they've never made amends to the community, to the activists? community? They have not rolled back the price. Have they tried to establish a dialogue? They have. They're not extraordinarily successful in that department. And why is that? I don't know. You have to ask them. They're at the bottom of the class. And then who do you have right next to them? I think the next one is Roche. And Roche, you know, marketed, didn't really develop it, but helped develop Fusion, which is the most expensive HIV drug out there. How much is it? Do you know? Well, when it was launched, I think the official price, which is not really what people pay, but the official price was something like $25,000 a year, which is quite a bit more than the next one below it. Is that price based on any ingredients in the drug? The rationale was that it was a complicated injectable drug. It was complicated to make and to uh, distribute and administer and required a lot of support. But they're backing out. They're, they've said that they have discontinued actively looking for any new HIV drugs, and they're focusing on hepatitis. And that's another thing that really prompted this report card. This is a time of we're seeing a lot of change in this industry. We're seeing uh, Roche stepping away. We're, uh, Merck has purchased Shering, and Shering had uh, an HIV drug in development, but none in the market. And we now see uh, GlaxoSmithKline uh, forming a joint venture with Pfizer to create a separate standalone HIV-focused company. So there's a consolidation there with Pfizer kind of backing away. Is that good or bad? Let's say it, it could be bad if it means that they're just sort of putting HIV drug development out the pasture, you know, saying, oh, this is a mature industry. We're not going to invest in it much anymore. That would be bad. But let's take the – I prefer to see it as an opportunity to bring the, the best and the brightest from both companies together and – synergize with their portfolios and really do some creative thinking that hasn't been possible in the, in, you know, wouldn't be possible in the big megastructure of a, of a corporate giant like GSK or Pfizer and do something really innovative and creative and give us this next jump to the next level in, in 
new therapies that are actually going to be very tolerable and safe and, and effective and the kind of things that people can use for a long, long time. That would be great, and that's what we're trying to leverage here with the report cards. That's what we want to see happen. But don't you think this could backfire, the issuing of the report cards, because nobody got A's? There's room for improvement. I think that's what the membership said. How many members do you have, by the way? This is the membership speaking. I don't know what the membership is. I think about 21 people were involved in this grading process. Some people were tasked with collecting the information. We set up a set of questions to ask that we wanted to know about. We thought this is the important stuff to know about. And we collected the information, and then we organized it and made the language very neutral and then presented it to the membership to assign grades and vote on, essentially. And we collected all that and averaged the grades. So what you see is a reflection of the wisdom, the collective wisdom of the membership, which is a group of very diverse, some very long-term, long-time AIDS activists, uh, community members uh, from all over the country. And this, is, and this is the collective sort of take on it. And I think, I think they got it right from my perspective. I think it's very tough. It's a very tough set of grades. You say no one got an A, but I think they got it right. And, and if you look at the strengths and weaknesses of the individual companies. And what I really want to see is someone get an A next year when we do this again, because that means they're taking this, these lessons seriously. They're stepping up the game and, uh, and performing better. And if they do perform better, I think the, the membership of ATAC will recognize it and, and reward someone. So this is the first time you guys have issued grades? This is the first time we've done it in this formal way. I think there was an earlier attempt, but not, not in a very formal way to, to do this in the past. But uh, I don't know what the grades were. So this is our first outing, and this really looks back over a long period of time. Subsequently, this is the baseline. We're looking for improvement. It seems to me also that, you know, if you're going to give grades, and a lot of them will be bad grades, coming after 2007 and 2008 when there were so many drugs approved, I mean, just a right. great amount of exciting new drugs that kind of changed HIV treatment today, that there were no prizes given then mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, Gilead for the, uh, and the BMS for uh, once, one pill once a day bed and for collaborating and Tebotech for their many drugs that they that they quickly you know got approved, or and Merck for the stuff that they did. I mean, it seems to me this is a very funny moment because it's after this amazing time, and suddenly it's kind of silent. There's nothing in the pipeline very much. I mean, a couple of little things, but nothing really different. And so the idea here is to spur some movement. It is. I think so. I think we we looked at the pipeline and and we saw that. There wasn't any dramatic next big plateau on the horizon that we were going to jump up to, and and that's concerning because as good as everything is right now, that just not not perfect. Um, I would say though that, that that Gilead and BMS have been well rewarded. <laughs> oh, you mean monetarily? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a very successful drug. Um, Icentris from Merck is is doing is starting to do very well and getting better all the time. So they've gotten their rewards, um, but we, but you're, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you notice when you look ahead at the pipeline, ooh, there's kind of a gap there. Um, you know, and and I think subsequently at, at the Cape Town conference, we saw some new stuff announced, which was after our voting, that did could give us some optimism for some possibilities. And and like I say, the, the Pfizer GSK joint venture has the possibility to do some really great stuff. Or, or not. 
So, so this is a good time to, to as you say, spur them onto uh, better performance. Talk about some of the companies that did well and why they did well and how they managed to work well with activists and keep activists in the loop, so to speak, of all the things that they do. Tell me about how ATAC does deal with these companies. Let me start with, I think that the highest grade was a B overall. Tebotech, for example, got its high marks because they have really embraced the principles of community member engagement at all levels and all stages of the drug development process. I mean, that's kind of built into their thinking now, and I think they recognize the value of it. So they have um, uh, community members who attend these inner sanctums that were only, you know, never seen by the the public, like uh, investigators' meetings when when they're launching a clinical trial. Members have sat on um, safety monitoring boards for clinical trials for new drugs that look at the same information that the doctors do and monitor that. So the watchdog role of community is, is built in, but also the consultation role and the advice is built in. And I think most people in the industry side who have been doing this a long time, if you talk to them, they recognize the value. And tell me what the value is. Just kind of a dumb level, the, the activists in ATAC find out what's going on at every company. They meet with all of them. Companies can't really do that. So we're, we're like little bees carrying pollen and information and ideas from one flower to the next and, and, and stimulating ideas. I, you know, we, we'll come in and we'll look at a protocol in an early stage of the design and say, well, you know, you're putting people at risk in the, with this protocol because, look, the people who are going to get the placebo are only going to have one active drug. That means they have a chance of becoming resistant. That's not acceptable anymore. And... You know, a lot, we've had people kind of scratch their heads, oh, we didn't think of that. So then they have to go back to the drawing board and find something that's really going to be an acceptable and ethical way of doing the research. So even though that they are being advised by physicians and being advised by all kinds of people, they wouldn't necessarily come up with the same perspective? Well, there's a lot of inertia. And I, and I think HIV is the classic example because in the old days, the activists went into the streets. The people went into the streets and went in, 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 you know, handcuffed themselves in the, com- in the company's offices to get the attention and, and make change. And it worked. It changed the FDA. It changed how the NIH works. It changed how the AIDS clinical trials group works when those barriers were knocked down. So there's a deep historical and unique relationship between the community and HIV research structure. When you say unique, is this not true about other disease states? There's been some, in breast cancer, there's been some, some great activists who've done some stuff. Hepatitis, it's now starting to happen with hepatitis. It's happening with tuberculosis now. Basically, it's because the HIV activists have moved over into those fields and are, are bringing those lessons. And there's, there's a lot of resistance, frankly, you know, because doctors often don't want the patients meddling in their business. The HIV doctors have learned that, well, it's not a threatening thing. It's a good thing. But it took a while to get it to It took this a point. while to get 25 there. 25 years, like. But, you know, definitely, I'm, I'm sure cancer could learn from it. So, so we're still really at the uh, little baby step stage for other disease states in terms of getting the kind of activism that's almost the norm now in HIV. So what ATAC does is a great model. It'd be a great model, yeah. So tell me a little bit about ATAC. How old is ATAC? 
ATAC was formed, I think, back in 2001, and it was intended as a body that would serve as a coalition between all these individual activists. You know, we had TAG on the East Coast in New York and Project and Forum in San Francisco, and then there were activists working out of uh, GMHC and APLA, and, and there were all, you know, in, in down in Houston and in Chicago. It, and it was a group of people who were either writers or writing about treatment or working for aid service organizations or activist organizations or information providers. It was a really a mixed bag, but they all had this thing in common. They, they'd been involved in treatment activism and um, negotiating with the pharmaceutical companies, and they wanted some kind of structure that was going to bring on new, younger people and mentor them and create opportunities and also give a, a, an umbrella structure so that the, the companies couldn't co-opt the activists, couldn't co-opt their consulting community members and, and would have a little bit of distance and deal with through ATAC so that there was some distance there. And there was, so that was, that's, that was the intention then, and that's essentially what it's done. Could anyone become a member? Anyone, it, you know, we encourage people who are interested in ATAC to find out more about it, uh, find out more about the history of drug development and, and the terms, and maybe talk to someone who's in ATAC and, um, and learn about it and see if it's right. But, yeah, we, and we're looking for new members, encouraging new members. It's, it's kind of a steep learning curve, I would say, because there's a lot of terminology and concepts to learn about the drug development process and statistics and medical jargon. And, but uh, a lot of people with no background in this all, at all but have a keen interest in, in having their voice heard in this arena just take right to it and do great. So absolutely, it's, there's, a, I think, a process of growing into it. But uh, we encourage people who are interested to, to look at the ATAC website. How often do you have meetings? A typical meeting would be um, having maybe an internal meeting, an educational meeting, uh, a meeting with a local researcher, wherever the, whatever city we're in, uh, and then preparation for meeting with a drug company, the meeting with the drug company, and then a debriefing from that, and maybe two drug companies would be met with. So we do our homework, we meet, we put our issues out, we hear what they have to say, deliver our messages, and do some analysis of what, what we've learned. And that's a, that's a good long day's work. So a typical meeting would be three days, and maybe we'll have uh, four of those a year. The Europeans have a similar group called ECAB, the European Community Advisory Board, that operates on a similar schedule, different style slightly. We have very open communication with those members as well. Since this is the same drugs being developed by the same companies, are their experiences different than yours? We have different takes on some things, but it's basically the same. I think this is the nice thing is we, because it's a coalition, you get a lot of independent minds thinking independently, and then we come together and we compare what we think. And that's a good test of the validity of ideas. And, you know, we really subject it to kind of a consensus process. So, you know, the good ideas shake out and the bad ones don't get far. And that's sort of built into the structure. It's really for people who are treatment geeks. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say, that's, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you like to read uh, journal articles. Well, journal, yeah, journal articles, <laughs> abstracts at conferences. It, it's going to be 
pretty necessary to become more of an activist, I think, in the coming years, because there is such a dry pipeline. And I mean, I think people don't really understand the history. We have to like learn the history of HIV so you could understand like, oh, wow, that was the best time just, just passed. What's happening, there's so much interest now in hepatitis, and, and rightfully so. You know, What happens in the industry is there's kind of a horse race to see who gets there first. It's not completely rational. But it happened with HIV. There's something about being the first. And then, then you worry about who's best later on. But being first gives, gives some kind of bragging rights. So there's a huge race to be first to the market with a hepatitis C drug right now. And that's, that's drawn some attention away from HIV, which is felt to be pretty, you know, people think the treatments are pretty good. Doctors are happy. Most of their patients have you know, undetectable viral loads. Some people still have problems with their regimens. You know, they're not, they, they are, if it's GI problems or poor sleeping, you know, different things. It's not what you want for the ideal quality of life for the next 30 or 40 years if you have to take these pills. Or if you forget, is it, is the, can you forget for a few days or get sick and, or run out or not afford them? You know, there's, some, there's some, still some barriers to perfect, perfect adherence and perfect suppression. Perfect tolerability. I think that's the big worry that there are huge barriers, particularly in a lot of people who get infected in their 20s and they're still organizing their life. They're still living a somewhat chaotic life. So they're trying to get everything together. They're dealing with a life threatening illness. It's hard. It's challenging to do it all. You could screw up a little bit on your meds and then you have to do the second line. And then, I mean, you have to get out of your 20s. <laughs> And that second line isn't as easy and fun as the first line. Right. right. So it's a real challenge for people who are getting their lives together and trying to get jobs and love lives and all this other stuff. There's going to be a bunch of screw-ups. And, you know, we have to just sort of understand that. And, you know, the whole idea of sequencing seems to not be talked about anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of a critical thing because it, now more than ever, um, because there's not a lot of... If there are better drugs, though, maybe sequencing can, can go away because you don't have to deal with it. I think that's what I, when I imagine the next generation, this next level, I mean, I imagine something where it's much more reliable. And, but it, it, the companies have to keep their eye on the ball if we're going to get there. So, so let's switch to um, some other things that I see that you have here on these grades. You mentioned that the community would like a lot of these drug companies to cover 100% of copays. What, what does that mean? The copayments are imposed by the insurance companies, and they, the copay prices, you know, the cost of copays have been going up and up. And if you take multiple drugs and multiple copays, some people could be paying like, you know, half their rent in copays every month even though their insurance is covering the so-called covering the cost of the drug. So, so they're paying like $400 a month they, or something yeah. in co-pays. Yeah. So, and the insurance companies do this to keep costs down, frankly. It's, a, it's called a barrier to utilization. If you put up these barriers, the fact is fewer people will use their insurance and you can don't have to pay out as much. The drug companies have almost universally set up some kind of program to reimburse or help with the copay payments to keep the costs manageable. And that's, that's a new thing. It's kind of a patched-over plan. 
and it's a patchwork of, of different plans. And what's it called? The Patient Assistance Program or something? It's the Patient Assistance Program. It covers the cost of the drugs for people who don't have insurance or maybe don't qualify for state ADAP, AIDS Drug Assistance Programs. So there is that in place or for emergencies, but this is separate. These are separate programs that are similar, but they're just intended to cover copay. They're, most of the companies are calling these temporary programs at the time. We're not, you know, we want them to become permanent for one thing because we don't see this problem going away. We'd like to see health care reform that makes all these problems obsolete, but this is the messed up system we have. And the idea is that if people can't afford these copays, they're not going to fill their prescriptions. And that's bad, bad news. We'd like to see more consistency, easier to understand, a little more commitment to them going forward as long as they're needed. Are these drug companies interested in making this change? It's all pretty new. It's still pretty new. So they're working them out. And I think there's a lot of ideas being tried out right now. And, and, and other people cover this much more closely than I do. I tend to focus on science more than the access issues. So uh, I can't give you all the details of which, which programs are really working out, which ones are causing problems. But uh, If somebody's interested in getting one of these companies to help with their copay, they could go on the site? Yeah, that, and that's important. Some of these companies have programs, but uh, <laughs> no one's heard about them because they don't really promote them. But yeah, generally... You should be able to go to the company's site for the drug, and hopefully, prominently, it should be displayed there somewhere that there, there is this program. Alternatively, you can get a card from your doctor, if your doctor is a big HIV provider, or from your pharmacy, if your pharmacy is uh, has a large HIV clientele. So these cards are out there that explain how to do it, or you can get one right off the Internet or you can call the patient assistance program for a company, and, and they should be able to give you the information, too, on copay assistance. Okay, then on to marketing. I see most people got fair to middling grades on, uh, on marketing. Tell me, what was wrong with the way people market HIV meds? Well, one of the lowest grades was GSK, and GSK has had a pattern for many years of, sort of bashing the competition, raising fears about the competition's side effects. It's because they were in a situation where their market share was eroding and slipping and another's was gaining. So that's a strategy that they use to, to hold that back. The problem we have it with is, is that it's based upon fear and it's just not an ethical way that we feel to address the, the community. But Abbott, of course, got an F. <laughs> got a lower grade than GSK. <laughs> well, Abbott did a lot of spin, again, around the 400% price increase. They actually put out some materials that the FDA sent them a warning letter over because it was misleading. It was comparing apples to oranges. And, you know, Norvir was approved as a, as a protease inhibitor, antiretroviral agent. But it's not used for that now. It's used as a boosting agent. So it's a little slippery thing going on between what it's indicated for and what it's used for. And they, in, in responding to the, the furor around the price increase, put out some materials that were misleading, and the FDA cited them for that. I think a lot of people don't realize that in the marketing of some of these drugs that the companies don't just say, my drug is great. Could you talk a little bit about that? The classic one is GSK doing 
educational presentations on the kidneys. Why is GSK being so generous with, with informing the community about the health of their kidneys, which is fantastic. Everybody should know about the health of their kidneys. It's very useful information. It's good information. It's true. But it's actually aimed at the idea that their competitor, Gilead's product, Tenofovir, has kidney toxicity. So they're raising kidney issues to get to the point of raising concerns about kidney toxicity using the competing drug. And Tenofovir is Viriad, and Viriad's in Atripla. Yes. And it's in Truvada. Yeah. So they get to hurt uh, any number of drugs. Right. So that's an example of that. If there's a workshop at an AIDS organization, and it's a bit suddenly about the horror of heart disease in HIV. And that might be coming from someone who wants to bash GSK's Abacavir, yeah. Because there was a, a couple of reports from a, a large cohort that associated Abacavir with some... Some cardiac events, you know. And there might be some company who has a nice workshop on depression and the right. how horrible depression is in HIV and that we should be very aware of it. And, and that who, would who, be aimed at uh, efavirenz. So, yeah, so Sestiva or otherwise it's in a tripla. So what company would be doing that one? Well, if you saw something like that, it might be coming from someone like uh, who has an alternative first-line treatment like Kalitra. So it might be coming from Abbott. It's a game they play among themselves. Some do it more heavy-handedly than others. The ads that GSK were running were basically saying, there are sharks out there, and they show these shark fins in the water. That was aimed at, don't rush to change your regimen. And that was probably, you could make the argument that was aimed at people who were taking Combivir, keeping them from switching to, say, Truvada. It was a time that was big, and the shift to Truvada was well underway. This is really not, this is only about a year and a half ago, so, which is a fine message. It says, don't switch without talking to your doctor. Well, you have to talk to your doctor if you want to switch anyway, but it was really designed to raise fear about switching. So, um, again, that crossed the line. But just taking the other side, I mean, what's a company to do? They're just trying to do their job. They're just business people. They have a product. They're trying to get attention for it, and they're trying to maintain market share, et cetera. What, what's bad about that? Well, you can do that, but you're, you know, you're going to get a bad grade from ATAC, and people are going to point at you and say, you're hurting people. So I, I think they'll have to think twice about it. I think there are voices inside the company who may be saying, wait, this is not ethical, this is not a road we want to go down, and maybe they'll have a bigger voice the next time this discussion comes up. That's the influence we're trying to have. Are you going to have meetings with all these companies and give them their report card? They've seen the report cards. I'm sure it'll come up when we finally do meet with them in, in turn throughout the coming year. So they didn't get upset with some of the grades that you gave them? I don't know the details of all. I haven't heard all the responses. I'm sure everybody wanted an A. And everyone got, you know, kind of fair to middling. And they try so hard. And, yeah. you, you know, the activists seem so ungrateful. I mean, they're included in every meeting. They're CC'd in all kinds of things. And yet they still don't appreciate that. I mean, I would think that somebody might get mad. Some individuals might, but this is really aimed at the collective act of the company. And some companies are being very well rewarded. Some are not. We're having a hard time. But it's really not about individuals. So what's the next step here? You've given out the grades. You've announced it. What happens next? Well, we're going to, you know, open the dialogue, and I'm sure we'll get into conversations with the companies about the specifics, and we'll try to promote some ideas of how they can do better. 
We have 10 guideline steps for improving their performance that range from developing new treatments to consulting the community and honoring the commitments to keep up with their post-approval research because it's not just the drug that they're bringing to market. They have to produce the information about the drug and how to use the drug. And it's a complicated scene out there. You have to work out all the, the interactions and certain populations have special needs and there's a lot that has to has to be understood so the drugs can be used safely. We're interested in people who have absolutely no options. And there are people like this who, even to all the drugs that are out there right now, they have resistance to everything, possibly because they were in the clinical trials for some of these drugs and they got the placebo and they only had one active drug, so they became resistant to it. We want new mechanisms to give them very early access to experimental treatments. And the FDA has heard that and they support that. This is compassionate use? It used to be called something like compassionate use, but it's it's all expanded access or early access. And what we're doing is looking now at, at a, a very early, early access. How early? It could be before phase three. It could be late phase two. It, it, it's usually when you've got a really good idea of the dose, and it may be for a very limited number of people. But the FDA seems to support it. The companies have to support it. But it's kind of a problem, as you say, the pipeline is not rich right now. So in and then in pricing, pricing is really complex because the states are strapped, the state programs. And if there's hundreds of thousands of people who have HIV who still haven't been diagnosed in intertreatment, that can break the bank. So something has to budge on pricing. And then as we mentioned, we talked about the negative advertising and, and inappropriate promotion or or, or hyping or uh, bashing the comp- competition. Not cool. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> in closing, it's great to hear that there are people who are sitting in on meetings and helping with this process and trying to advocate on the behalf of the million or so people in the United States who have HIV and the 200,000 or so who are on treatment. But what if somebody out there is listening, who's listening to this wants to join ATEC but doesn't know that much about treatment but wants to help you guys in some way? Do you need donations? We absolutely need donations because in the New York Times article, it was very clear, it's one of our vulnerabilities, so to speak, is that we're being funded by the pharmaceutical companies that we're criticizing. So one of our goals as an organization is to really diversify our funding, and that's part of it. Individual support would be a big help in that because it helps with our uh, independence. To, uh, I'll say, I got to say, the, the membership probably largely unaware and, and wouldn't care anyway <laughs> about where they're funding. They're they're bulldogs about um, about these issues, and they're if you can see from the grading, they're really tough. I mean, it was a tough it was a tough set of grades that came down. I think they're reflective of the reality of the perception of this very diverse membership, but yeah, definitely on the tough side. So the positive spin is that this is where we want to see improvement. Do you expect next September 10th, 2010, you'll have new grades? Yeah, I I think so. And especially if we see movement improvement, I think we want to really call attention to that and and bring that out. If nothing changes or things get worse, that'll be a problem. Thank you so much, Bob. All right. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Great. Bye-bye. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice. 
should not be considered substitutes for professional services and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thank you for listening to HIV News and Views. For more podcasts, be sure to visit us online at www.thebody.com.